All right, good morning. <clears throat> All right, be praying for me. This might be the shortest sermon you're ever going to receive in your life, okay? Um, <clears throat> no. Uh, we're going to take a detour from our Moses series. I was planning on preaching on the last part of Exodus 34, uh, 29 to 35. And um, honestly, um, there's a few things in the text that I'm really wrestling with. And uh, just didn't really feel like really ready in my heart to really like teach on that passage. Uh, kind of a, a rare thing, but that's kind of where I'm at. And so um, uh, we'll be looking at that, Lord willing, next Sunday. <clears throat> I want to encourage you to pull out your notes. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Job this morning. We're going to be talking about um, Job being a model of suffering uh, really uh, a model of suffering. He went through so much tragedy, but the tragedy that Job experienced really led to a lot of triumph and victory in his life. And so uh, pull out your message notes, um, open up your Bibles to Job, or you might say Job, 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 it's all good, right? <clears throat> We're going to look at chapters 1 and 2. Job was a contemporary to Abraham, and that's really good to Good for us to know. Abraham, the great patriarch, great man of faith. It's really through Abraham, um, through his lineage, his uh, son and, and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that uh, we eventually have the, the blessing that we have in Christ. Um, we're going to look at Job this morning. He suffered much. He was a model of suffering. Job faced some tough times. And and, you know, in life, we're going to be facing tough times. We're going to face times of uncertainty. We're going to wonder, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? What's going on in my life? But the Bible tells us to walk by faith, not by sight. And God wants us to face the future with faith, not fear. You know, there were uh, two Scotsmen. They were arguing about the most comforting scriptures. And one said... Um, Psalm 56.3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And the other said, yeah, that's pretty good. I, I used to lean on that, but now I go to Isaiah 12.2, I will trust and I will not be afraid. See, you can start with fear and then move to trust, or you can start with trust and not fear. God does this work within our hearts. You know, the people of faith, we're not exempt from life's difficulties. You know, we're going to face illness. Well, our loved ones uh, are going to face illness. You might face the loss of a job, a demotion. Uh, you might be a, the victim of abuse or a crime. I want you to fill the blank, fill this blank in. God has given us a pass on, earth, on eternal suffering, but not on earthly suffering. Isn't that good to know? You know, if you're a believer in Christ, your future is secure because of Christ, his work on the cross, his accomplished work on the cross, you get a pass on eternal suffering, but we don't get a pass on earthly suffering. Earthly suffering is like playing the game Monopoly. You just keep going around the board, right? And when people start getting houses and hotels, it's kind of hard to kind of bypass the landmines and get past that territory, right? I mean, that's, that's a picture of our life. It's a game of monopoly. And then at the end of life, all the pieces go back in the box. 
right? But our life is, is, is filled with tragedy and suffering and pain. Alexander McLaren, I love what he said, if God sends us on stony paths, he will provide us with strong shoes. You know, God's going to send you on some stony paths, you know, um, not smooth paved roads, but stony paths. And, but he's going to provide the strength, the endurance, the perseverance. Let, let's look at the life of, of Job, kind of one passage at a time. Uh, Job chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 to 2, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Now, the Bible tells us that Job lived in the land of Uz, not Oz, like the Wizard of Oz, okay, land of Uz. Um, it's interesting that people name their children after Bible characters. Anybody name their kids after maybe a Bible character, a Bible name, anybody? Okay, there's a few of you. Um, all, all the rest of you guys, you guys are straight heathens, right? Just straight heathens. I mean, yeah. No. <clears throat> With our kids, it wasn't intentional. Uh, our firstborn, John Mark, uh, we keep getting asked to this day, is that his first full name? Yes, John Mark. That's his first full name. Uh, Joshua, and then Grace, and then Luke. Um, Luke's middle name, he thought for the longest time that it was, his middle name was Bear because we called him Lukey Bear. I mean, literally, from the day he was like a little tyke, well, a big tank, right, in the nursery, this, this boy was like, how big was he? Almost 11 pounds? Almost 11 pounds, the boy was huge. So he wasn't a little tight. He was a big tank, man. And we, we would always call him Lukey Bear, Lukey Bear. And then we had to break the news to him. I think he was like in second grade or first grade. Your, your middle name, Luke, is not Bear. It's Matthew. He started bawling. I mean, I, I want to be Bear. I want to be Lukey Bear, not Luke. Matthew. So anyways, we, we covered all four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Anyways, um, but I've never met a person who's named their little girl Jezebel. I've never, I've never met someone who had the name Job or Job. We admire Job's patience. We admire his faith. We admire his endurance, but we don't want to be him. We don't want to go through what Job went through. And when you look at the story of Job, it's really told as a, as a drama. The impact of his life is in the whole story, not just a certain chapter. You know, Job, he was a very successful man. He was materially wealthy. Um, you know, I find it interesting, you know, sometimes people, you know, they, um, well, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. No, I'm not even going to go there. Anyways, it is not wrong for God to bless you and put his favor upon you if you have material stuff. That's not wrong. Abraham had a lot of real estate. Job had a lot of stuff, right? The, the, the issue is, does money control you or do you control money? Is money your God? Are you chasing it? Is that your, your identity, your ultimate sig significance? Or is it, a, is it a tool? Are you a conduit allowing God's blessings and resources to, to channel through your life to be a blessing to other people? See, God, when he gives, he doesn't give so that we hoard. He gives so that we can be a blessing. That's why he gives. 
And so, all right, I'll get off that topic. But Job was, he was a, a successful man. Spiritually, he was blameless. He was upright. This is what God said about him. That's incredible. This is what the, the creator of the universe said about this man, Job. He was probably the richest man of his era. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 ox, um, oxen, 500 female donkeys. Now just stop and think about this for a moment. 3,000 camels. That means he had a whole lot of servants making sure that those camels got water, right? Job had a lot of headaches and problems and, you know... Can you imagine just taking care of the livestock that God gave him? He was a man who loved God. He was a man who loved his family. If there's two things that you should pursue in your life, two things that should be engraved on the tombstone, this man or this woman loved God and loved their family. Job vertically had this passionate, deep love for God. Horizontally, he loved and he served and he prayed for his family. He prayed for his grown adult kids. You know, that tells me that you're never done parenting, right? When you think you're going to be in the empty nest, you know, like, no. Oh, empty nest, yeah, they may not live with you or they may go to college and do the boomerang effect. They come back to you. They're living in your basement. They're single till they're like 40, Right? Some of you are like, please, God, no. Please, God, no. Right? But I don't know what I was saying, where I was going. I was going somewhere with this, right? You're never done parenting. You're always investing. You're always laboring. You're always praying. Job was righteous, rich, respected. It was as if spiritually he had a hedge or a wall around him. Some have said someone... I'm struggling on three hours of sleep, y'all. So I'm like, I'm really tore up. So um, some have said that Job lived a charmed life. He lived a charmed life. He lived a, a, a blessed life. Verses 8 to 12 of chapter 1 is the strangest conversation of the Bible. Um, turn there with me or look at it, look, look at it with me uh, in your notes. Job 1, 8 to, 8 to 12. And the Lord said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against them do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, Yeah, I've seen him, right? But I question his motivation. He's really serving you for the goodies. If you strip him... Of all that he has, he'll curse you to your face. And this really kind of begs the question, why do we serve God? Why do, we, why do you serve God? Do you serve God because it's, it's like a rabbit's foot, it's good luck? 
hey, you know, if, I, if, I, if I'm spiritual, good things will happen to me. You know, or do you serve God out of prosperity? Are you like, hey, you know what, I, I can get like an inroad on prosperity. You know, if I serve God, then my life will be prosperous. Maybe your life won't be prosperous. Maybe you, you'll endure a lot of hardship and suffering like the Apostle Paul. That guy wasn't prosperous. He was rich in faith, but that guy went through a lot of trials. He was beaten and shipwrecked, almost stoned to death. That guy went through a lot of hard stuff. Why do you serve God? Our, our, our service to God should be, should be an outflow of our love for God. We, we serve God because we love God. You know, God allows Satan to touch him, but not his health or his life. All his children, we know the story tells us all of his children are meeting in the house of the oldest son. It's always the oldest taking care of all the younger kids, right? So they're meeting the oldest son's house, and uh, the story tells us that a servant bursts through the door and tells Job, the Sabians have raided the farm. They stole the oxen and donkeys. Servants have been killed. And then another man comes to Job, and, and, and this person, this servant says there's been a freak, freak storm. Lightning and fire burned up all the sheep. 7,000 sheep burned up. And he said, servants are dead. Another man rushes in and tells Job that the, the Chaldeans have raided the camels and killed the servants. And finally, if it's not already difficult, one more comes in to deliver the horrific news. A storm, a wind collapsed on the house where all your children were having a party. We dug through the rubble and they're all dead. This was not the first trial in Job's life. You know, there's two extremes of trials, polar opposites. Number one, adversity, which is what we just described. The other one is prosperity. And that, I would say that's the real trial because prosperity can easily cause you to turn your back on God. If you experience days of prosperity, you could be very complacent. Very self-sufficient, very prideful. Pride can set in. You know, this is my doing. I worked hard for this. I, I got the good education. I got the, the, the job. This is my money. But when we're flat on our back and we're facing adversity, adversity causes us to really look up. When there's a disease or a bankruptcy or the death of a loved one or, or the impending death of a loved one, it just kind of reshapes priorities. It, it, it causes us to think about life differently. That life is not about the mundane. It's, it's not about the rat race, getting more and hoarding more. No, life is about a relationship with God and our relationship with our loved ones and taking advantage of the time that we have now. I want you to write this down fill in the blank. Prosperity can pull us away from God. Adversity can drive us to God. I've seen it in, in people's lives. I've, I've experienced it in my own life. Prosperity can cause you to drift, but adversity, when you're facing tough times, it causes you to run after God. You're no longer independent. You are dependent. You're no longer self-reliant. You are relying upon the grace and the mercy and the strength of God. When a trial hits your life, you could do four things. Four things. Number one, you can judge God. Write that down. You can judge God. 
you could start questioning God. Well, well, God, I thought you were good. You know, I thought you loved me. I thought you had a plan for my life. You start kind of, you know, you, you take God off the throne of your life and you put yourself on the throne and you start judging God, right? You start, you know, pounding on the desk with the gavel. Number two, another obvious result is envy others. You know, you start looking at other people's lives. Man, I, I, wish, I wish I had their life, their career, their spouse, their children, their money, their stuff. You start playing the comparison game. Bad idea. Number three, self-pity. You start saying, my life is hard. You know, I'm ruined. And so it, everything becomes very inward focused. It's about you. I, me, my. You're consumed just with your life. It's all about you. Or number four, you run to functional saviors. When, when a trial hits your life, a lot of people, instead of working through that by the grace of God and, and, and allowing that circumstance to draw them to the Savior, they, they flee, they run, they, they escape to drugs and alcohol and entertainment and sex. Back to the story. Picture the scene with me. Job is crushed with the weight of the news. He's lost it all. There's no insurance. He's lost his entire empire. But the greatest loss was his children. That was the final blow. Children dying before their parents. That's not the way it's supposed to go. It's not the way it's supposed to go. Parents should never have to bury their kids. I remember when I was a, a young pastor, because I'm, I'm no longer a young pastor, I'm an older pastor. I've come to grips with, uh, I'm not 25 anymore, you know? But I remember I was a young pastor, and, and uh, I was the pastor of a, a young married adults at our former church. It was a very big church, so it was so big that they said, okay, you're going to be in charge of married couples 18 to 39. So that's your division. So care for them, you know, everything. I was over lots of other things. But I, there was one couple that she got pregnant and they were so excited. And, and uh, it was eventually it was a, a stillborn. And, and I remember having to, um, they asked me to officiate that graveside service for them. Here I am, a young pastor with a few little kids of my own. And I just thought, God, what am I going to tell them? And I knew that there was so much hope in Christ, and, and I pointed them to an Old Testament passage about David and Bathsheba and the baby dying. And, and King David said that, you know, this child will not come to me, but someday I will go to that child. And we know that the Bible gives so much hope for those who lose children, but parents should not, they should never have to bury their kids. What would your reaction be if you were Job? Just like put yourself in the story. If you were Job, what would your reaction be? I think there'd be a lot of numbness, a lot of shock, disbelief, overwhelming sorrow, unbelievable grief. I mean grief that just unfathomable. But what would your first words be? You lose everything. You lose your children. Would you have words of anger, 
words of blasphemy or profanity. I want you to listen to Job's words in Job 1, 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job wasn't angry with God. He wasn't bitter. He didn't walk away from God. Job walked to God. Job worshiped God. You might ask yourself the question, why is Job in the book? Why, why, how did he make it? He's a man who suffered greatly. But his response to tragedy and pain is something to take note of. When Job heard the news of his children, his knees buckled, his heart was bent towards God. I think Job learned the, the transient nature of life, that things change all the time. Do they not? I mean, life is transient. This is, this, we're living a, a very temporal, fleeting life. I mean, it just seemed like just yesterday, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the neighborhood with the street kids playing ball. Just yesterday, I'm going to summer camp. Just yesterday, I married my beautiful bride. Just yesterday, I just had my firstborn child. I mean, now I got three drivers. Lord, help me. We got three drivers, man. Four teenagers, four and five years. And it was intentional. What were we thinking, honey? You know? But life is so transient. It changes all the time. But here's what we learn from the book of Job and in this whole story. Yes, life changes, but God never changes. God never changes. God's constant. Hebrews tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Job knew that life was changing, and, but God was unchanging. Job had the right perspective on his life. He recognized that he brought nothing into this world, and he's going to leave this world with nothing. God gives, and he takes away. That's what he said. That's what he believed. Job 13, 15, look at this in your notes. Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Can, can you say that? Can I say that? When, 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 when I feel like God's slaying me, can I honestly say, my hope is in you, God? Job 19, 25 to 27. Job goes on, he says, for I know. I love that word know. He, I know. Take it to the bank. It's a done deal. I'm confident. I know that my Redeemer lives. Talk about a, a forward-looking faith that Job had in the coming Messiah. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and, and not another. My heart faints within me. Satan got, got his answer. Job wasn't serving God for the goodies. The only one cursing was Satan. You see Job's response. Satan hated Job's response. Because Job responded in faith, not in fear. Let's look at the second conversation between God and Satan. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Can you hear Satan hiss, skin for skin? I mean, Satan didn't, he didn't get it. He thought he was up in the ante. I mean, nothing could be worse than standing at the fresh grave of 10 children. Job became so sick. We know medically, we don't really know exactly medically what was wrong with him, but he had these sores and boils, and he was deathly ill. Even his own wife said, curse God and die. Three friends of his, they come by for seven days to visit him, and at first they're sympathetic with them, and then they they begin to feel the need to explain that Job's problem was theological. You know, when someone is hurting, when they're going through a lot of grief and sorrow, one of the best things that you can do is just listen and be there for them and just pray for them and love them. You don't have to try to like, you know, figure out the right words to say, cry with them, hug them, pray for them. Sometimes it's not a problem to be solved, but a pain to be endured. They gave Job this horrible advice. You know, they said, Job, there must be some dark sin in your life for, for all this to happen to you. They connected Job's sin to suffering or suffering to sin. But Here's one minor problem. God said that Job was a blameless and upright man. Job twenty two twenty one. agree with God and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you. This is what they tell him. Their advice was, hey, Job, get right with God and you'll prosper. You know, sin and suffering is connected in a universal way. We live in a fallen world. There's death and decay and disease as a result of Adam and Eve. But, the, you know, the Bible says that the cosmos groans under the fall of humanity but our specific sin that we endure is not connected to suffering only in the sense that we reap what we sow so choices have consequences job's friends insisted hey job there must be some hidden sin in your life but here's the deal we know that wasn't the case that doesn't mean that job was a perfect man because he wasn't but he was a righteous man Job had faults and failures and sin, but it, it, God was testing Job's faith. Corrie ten Boom, she suffered greatly at a Nazi death concentration camp. And at one point she said this, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper. I love that. God is deeper than any pit that you're in. You know, God tested Job's faith and not because of Satan, so Satan would know, God tested Job's faith so that he would know. You know, we don't know how precious our faith really is until we go through a trial. You know, I've learned that 
people live for one of three things. They live for health, they live for wealth, and they live for family. Job lost all three. He lost his wealth, he lost his health, he lost his family. After some point, Job became very pessimistic. Chapter 3, Job begins to question God. And, and really, the, the rest of the book is about Job questioning God. You know, why God? Why did you allow this? All the whys. And then we get to the end of the book, and God finally answers Job in chapter 38. And it's classic. Job 38, 1 to 7. Then the Lord answered Job. I love this. Like, God was so gracious and kind for Job to be just very real, very honest, very just brutally open about life, about suffering, about why. Um, you know, Job, Job was wrestling with those issues that we wrestle with. And yet God was so patient. God listened to Job. But then it says, the Lord answered Job. I mean, that right there is grace upon grace. God didn't have to answer Job. God's God. But he answered Job out of the whirlwind and, and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. This is where, I mean, it's like mic drop moment. God's getting ready to bring it on Job. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding who determined its measurements? Surely you know. I, I love that sarcasm there. Job, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There's poetic language here. God is saying, Job, you're the creature and I'm the creator. And let's just settle that once and for all. I'm creator, you're creature. And Job finally, he finally understood. He finally, like God's truth, gripped his heart. And he just realized, you know what? Yes, yep, God, you are above and beyond. And, and, and you love me and you've got a plan. Look at Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you could do all things. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, stop there real quick. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Sometimes the way we live our lives, we, we, our practice is different than our belief. Our, our actions don't match up. Lifestyle doesn't match up with, with our lips. Sometimes we believe in a very practical way that God's plans for our life can be thwarted. We believe that. But, but, but God is saying, I mean, Job right here is, is giving us truth, right? That, that God can do all things. This speaks of God's sovereignty. There's nothing that God cannot do. There's nothing too difficult for God. God can do all things. Circle the word all. All means everything. You, you come up against something, you're like, man, that, that's that's that's. Difficult, not difficult for God. That, that's going to be hard, not hard for God. You know, I don't know how that's going to play out. God already has it played out. You know? No purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
So God rules and reigns. God is sovereign. There is this false theology out there that is so grotesque. It's called open theism. It's this belief that the future is open and bad things happen to you and then God adjusts and he goes from you know, option A to option B, option C, option D, and based on choices and things that are unfolding in your life, God is unfolding his plans for your life as he's seeing everything, you know, happen, transpire. Wrong. Wrong. God is not second-guessing. God is not, you know, wringing his hands in heaven. God is not pacing heaven wondering, okay, what am I going to do? You know, if they do this, what am I going to do? No, God's sovereign. He's in control. We serve a big, glorious God. And so when we face dark days, difficult seasons, we could just say, God, I trust you. I trust you because you are in control. I don't see your sovereignty playing out in 10 million ways in so many people's lives. You're behind the curtain center stage. You're orchestrating everything. I can't see it, but I know you're there, and I know you're working, and your plans can never be thwarted because you rule and reign. That's good news. Why do we fret about so many things when the Bible is so clear about God being in control. He's in control of the universe. He's in control of your life. I mean, man, just leave here today. God, no matter what comes my way, hardship, suffering, pain, good days, bad days, you're good. And you're in control. Job says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. I mean, these are wonderful truths to take to heart. When your life seems to be unraveling, God is constant. God's unchanging. God's on the throne. No one can take God off the throne. The vision that the Apostle John had in Revelation 4, God's on the throne. I mean, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. I mean... There's new worship songs being sung in heaven right now. We're going to experience it someday. I mean, that, that's, that's the end game. That's the hope that we have in Christ. Eternity with Christ around the, the throne of God. I mean, Job says, these things are too wonderful for me, which I do not know. You're right, Job, because you're finite. God's infinite. You're temporal. God's eternal. You're man, but God is creator, infinite. All-wise, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and and you make it known to me. I I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I love what he said there. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Faith kicks in. You might say, wait a minute, I thought Job was without sin. Yes, initially he was. But now he's full of pride. He confesses it to God. He gets his heart right. And guess what God does? God, the Bible ends with Job receiving like a a double portion of what he had. Job 42.10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job 
when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I mean, so just think about that, right? Like, so he was doubly blessed. Now he has 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, not just three, six, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 donkeys. God gave him 10 more children. 10 are in eternity. God gives him 10 more. Job's wife, oh, she was really blessed. She had 10 more labors. She shouldn't have cursed God, man. I'm telling you, she shouldn't have done it. Now, that's the drama. So that's the story, and I've weaved in application as I've been teaching it. But let me land the plane really fast, real quick. Point number one, suffering is permitted by God. Suffering is permitted by God. God allows it, and oftentimes it drives us to God. I love what Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said. It doesn't matter really how great the pressure is. It only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then the greater the pressure, the more it presses you to his breast. That's what we want to do with pressure. We want to allow the pressures of life to drive us to the heart of God. You might say, well, who was responsible? The Sabians, the Chaldeans, God, Satan. Well, it was Satan, but God allowed it to happen. And, and, and I know you might be thinking, I, I don't quite understand this. Well, join the club, because I quite don't understand it either. So God has a perfect will, and he has a passive will. There are times God is so sovereign, and he's providentially working. I love what John Piper said. He, he defined um, providence as God's purposeful sovereignty. Isn't that good? Providence is God working in the scenes, God working in the circumstances of our lives. Sovereignty is God is in control. Like, sovereignty is God saying, sit down, shut up, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Providence is God saying, I'm going to work it all out for your good. Oh, come on now, let's talk about this. Not only is God in control, but God is saying, the end result is going to be good. Because I'm, I'm filled, I, one of my attributes is providence. I'm a God of providence. So I'm in control, but the end result is going to be good for your life. So God has this perfect will. He ordains things, right? But he also has a passive will. The passive will, the, the latter, is filtered through his hands. Thankfully, he's a good, good father. He, he, he filters things, right? You know, I like to say that Satan can't do anything without God's permission. Satan is on a very long leash. God says, walk, he's going to walk. God says, stop, he's going to stop. Why does God allow Satan to, to torment us? Why doesn't he just you know, throw Satan into the, the pit of hell? Because we know there are two eternal destinies. There's an eternal place called heaven and an eternal place called hell. Two realities. And you're, you're going to go to one place or the other why doesn't God just put an end to to Satan's fiery darts and his him tormenting us someday he will the book of Revelation says that he will be thrown into the the lake of fire here's point number two trials don't come with explanations you know trials come suddenly and unexpectedly everything is good and then suddenly it's not good. 
Everything's great. All of a sudden, it's not great. Diagnosis, loss of a job, loved one dies, prodigal son, prodigal daughters not coming back. God, God doesn't tell us the whys, but God knows the future. He knows the future, but we don't. I want you to jot this down. Never trade what you do know for what you don't know. Never trade what you do know. There are things that we don't know. Like, why is God allowing this or that in my life? But here's what we do know. What do we know? We know that God is in control, that God works in the circumstances of our life to bring about good, right? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that God is good and God is in control and God loves us. And God has a plan. Jot this down. Sometimes God's preparation may come packaged as pain. His preparation may come packaged as pain. God's going to lead you through a, maybe a painful season to get you to, to where he wants you to be. I remember hearing a story several years ago uh, about Wallace Johnson, the, the founder of Holiday Inn. He's a dynamic Christian. And he was 40 years old. When he was 40 years old, his boss fired him from a sawmill job. And it was just devastating for him. And this was during the Great Depression. Him and his wife needed the income from his small job. Um, Wallace felt that the world was caving in on him. And his wife was worried. And she asked him, well, what are you going to do? But Wallace had been thinking. And he answered by saying, I'm going to mortgage our home and go into the building business. And his first venture was the construction of two small buildings. Within five years, Wallace Johnson was a multi-millionaire. In an interview, he said, today, if I could locate the man who fired me, I would sincerely thank him for what he did. At the time it happened, I didn't understand why I was fired. Later, I saw that it was God's unerring and wondrous plan to get me into the ways of his choosing. Maybe God is using a cascade of trials and suffering to get you into the ways of his choosing. Jot this down. Life's greatest breakings often lead to God's greatest blessings. Sometimes God breaks us, and this is what I'm learning, and I share it with my D group uh, Thursday morning, that God breaks us. But when God breaks us, he's going to heal us. He's going to fix us. You see this play out with God's people in the Old Testament. He breaks us and then he fixes us. He heals us. But often the, the, the breaking, the pain, all that, it leads to God's greatest blessings. You know, when you're ready to quit, you just need to remember. It takes a death to have a resurrection. It, it takes pain to have progress. It takes a hurt to have healing. It takes a struggle to have a, a story worth telling. It takes a trial to have a testimony. And so we, we don't want to experience that. We, we want the triumph. We want the victory. We want the good days. We don't want the tragedy. We don't want the dark days. We don't want the struggle. We don't want the pain. Here's point number three. It's okay to be honest with God. I think at, as believers, we are so afraid. I, I, I just can't verbalize how I'm feeling about the situation to God because, you know, 
maybe God will punish me or maybe God won't love me. Listen, there's nothing you could ever do or say that would cause God to love you more or less. Your standing with God is because of Christ, not because of you. And you just have to remember that. Now, does God want us to pursue him and pursue a life of holiness and righteousness? 100%. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, at the end of the day, there's, there's nothing that you can do, just like grace is a gift. You don't earn grace. Well, you're, you're standing with Christ. It's a done deal. It's because of God's character, not because of who you are. And I think sometimes we're so afraid, well, if I say this, you know, but here's the deal. God already knows you're feeling that way because he knows everything. You don't need to verbalize something. He, he sees it in your heart. And he wants to be there for you. I think it's just a matter of being real. You know, sometimes people don't want to, they don't want to question God. You know, I just think it's, it's being real. I think it's a matter of faith because the reason I say it's faith is the implication is if you're real and honest with God, God, why is this going on in my life? The implication is, hey, you know what, God? I think you could do something about it. Because if you weren't real with God about it, then you wouldn't take your burdens to God. But you know that God can do something about it, and so you come before God. Point number four, I really got to land the plane. Here we go. The answer to human suffering is in God's presence. That's the answer. That's the answer. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The cure for Job's questions, the cure for your questions is God's presence. Write this down. Sometimes you can't see the hand of God. You just have to trust the heart of God. You can't see it, but you can trust his hand. Let's pray.